Hi everyone and welcome to Professor P podcast. My name is Parsa Pekar. I'm your host. I'm a psychotherapist, professor and author. And today we are having another episode of Influence series. And the topic we're going to focus on is the influence of DNA or genetics. And through this episode, we are going to answer the question of how does our genetic or DNA influence our behaviors and identity? As what we do in every episode, first we're going to have a book review section, which I'm going to go over the book called How DNA Makes Us Who We Are by Dr. Robert Plumin which actually he's going to be my guest in the second part of the show. And then lastly, I'm going to have one of my students for today's episode. First, I need to mention that before I got into this research and finding out more about DNA and genetics, I did not have that much information about it. And when I started reading the book, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are, uh, by Dr. Plumin, and then I started to watch some of his lectures, I got very curious. And it really, in so many different ways, got me interested to research more about it. And I'm really uh, fascinated by the world we live in and the way we are being created as human beings. So uh, I'm just going to do a book review of how DNA makes us who we are. I'm going to make it short because I'm going to hear from the author himself later on in the show. But I'm going to go over some of the top lessons of the book and even some of the practical ways we can apply those lessons into our own life. So Dr. Robert Plumin, he's a renewed behavioral genet uh, geneticist which delves into fascinating world of DNA and its impact on our individuality. Something I absolutely love about this book is if you look at most scientific books, sometimes they're very hard to understand and comprehend for those of us who maybe do not have that much knowledge or information about it. But this book makes it very accessible for everyone who can, who wants to read and is interested. So, uh, through engaging stories and, you know, clear uh, explanations, Dr. Plumin describes how the science behind genetics, how it works, and also illustrates how DNA influences various aspects of our lives from, you know, intelligence and personality to mental health and some of the physical disease and etc. So he, what he also does is, of course, he tackles the argument that there's always the right nature against the nurture and also the interplay between genetics and environment. Um, something that Dr. Plumin mentions in his book, as well as some of his lectures that I have watched, is he talks about how, especially in psychology, we've been focusing so much on the environment or the nurture side you know, from Freud and moving on, but he's discovering now, uh, he rediscovered, as we would say, how DNA makes us who we are, which uh, is fascinating when we look at how much DNA can influence every aspect of our life. So what are some of the top lessons of this book? First, genetic plays a significant role in shaping our traits, behavior, and potential. This is very important when we think about it. Uh, second, DNA influences aspects like intelligence, personality, mental health, and as we mentioned, physical disease. Third, environment and upbringing also matter, but genetic is a key factor. And something I like specifically about this lesson is Dr. Plumman talks about how when we are talking about genetic, we are talking about systematic force, right? It's, it's orderly and it's based on a system where, on the other hand, the environmental factors are known to be unsystematic, which means, you know, they happen, but we cannot really predict, right, uh, the environment. 
The fourth is genetic differences between individuals are a major contributor to diversity. That's also very important. We're going to talk about that more when we talk about how we can apply these lessons. Fifth lesson is understanding genetics can help personalize education, healthcare, and interventions, which I absolutely love and I agree. We will talk later in the podcast when I when we have the interview and uh, this uh, the segment with uh, Dr. Plumbing of how we can make that happen. Six genetic research raises ethical concerns like privacy from contents and potential misuse. Uh, seven genetic knowledge can empower individuals, families, and society, but also requires responsible handling. So these are something to know and something that Dr. Plumin talks about is the DNA revolution, which talks about how by knowing the, our DNA and understanding what that makes us who we are, we can predict problems and prom promises from birth. We can prevent problems before they emerge. And of course, as we talk about, we can transform science, society, how we understand ourselves. So let's talk about some of the actions that can be applied based on the lessons. Because as someone who you listen to our podcast, you know that every point and lessons that I talk about in my book review, I always wanted to make something practical out of it. Because I do believe that knowledge, unless it's being practiced, it does not have any power for us. So what are some of the actions? The first lesson, we need to embrace individual differences and recognize the role of genetics in shaping unique strengths and challenges, which means we encourage diversity and inclusivity in education, work, and our personal relationship when we do understand that. The second lesson, we uh, consider genetic predisposition when making decisions about health, education, and career, which we can seek uh, genetic counseling or testing to inform personal choices and interventions. This is one of the main benefits, I do believe, about understanding how DNA makes us who we are, because then we are able to make smart choices. Third lesson is about balancing environmental and genetic factors when understanding behavior and outcomes, which if you want to apply that, we need to adopt a holistic approach to personal growth, which we acknowledge both nature and nurture, right? Both are important when we think about our own personal lives, and we do need to take those into considerations. The fourth lesson is we need to celebrate human diversity and recognize the value of genetic differences, which uh, we can promote inclusive language and practices and challenge discriminatory behaviors or biases. And fifth lessons and last action that we want to talk about is we can empower individuals and families with genetic knowledge and support, which we provide education and provide resources for informed decision-making, ensuring accessible and equitable genetic services, which again, we're gonna hear from our guests soon. So please stay tuned and we're gonna be right back. Now I have my guest, Dr. Plamin. Uh, Robert, welcome. And please give us one value that's important to you and why. Well, I think it's changed over my lifetime. You know, I think um, earlier on in my career, I was more concerned with achievement and doing well. And But now as I get older and have grandchildren, I find I'm most concerned about kindness, particularly. You know, I think it's so important, especially in these days where so many people seem so angry all the time and 
you know, I, I don't know to what extent you and I will agree or disagree on these various issues, but I'm sure we can disagree agreeably, you know, and that's part of it, you know, and yeah. I, I'm really missing that in society more and more, you know, mm -hmm. so kindness, I guess, is most important to me now, you know, doing your best to be a good person and make life as good as possible for other people. Yeah, that's such a great value. You know, on the topic you mentioned, Robert, um, I always tell my students there is one law that, you know, I have to, three laws for them to succeed. Uh, first is to be respectful, uh, which you mentioned, right? We might disagree on topics or our opinions, but it's very important for people to share, right? And feel respected and comfortable. And, you know, that's one of the key things I tell them that you're open to share. And of course, we are here to we don't agree all the time with our each other's opinion but it's important to always respect uh, other people and their opinion and then try to uh, argue in a healthy way you know which we as you said i think we are missing that in our society as well so. i really agree it's so important especially at universities you know it's saddest to see that the universities are they have some of the worst examples of this you know and God, if a university ought to be anything, it ought to be a place where people can openly express their ideas and welcome diverse points of view. That's what we're here for. We're here to learn. You know, you don't learn if everybody always agrees all the time with everything. So I'm glad you feel that way. I think it's so important for your students. Exactly. And I know you also teach, Robert. So that's I'm sure that's something you promote as well. Um, so for today's topic, uh, Robert, we are answering the question, how does our DNA influence our behaviors and identity? And of course, I read your book, Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are, and I've listened to some of your uh, talks, and I truly enjoy them. I'm going to be very honest. Something that comes to my mind, and maybe we can start even with that, Robert, is you also mentioned in psychology, right? They mentioned they focus so much on the external factors and the nurture side. But I mean, you're, you know, through your book, you show how much our nature or DNA affects us individually. And you have such a good examples too, which we can talk about those examples as well, such as weight, etc. But I think my question is, with that argument, something that comes to my mind personally and from, you know, the people I work with in therapy or people I know, my family members or friends, I think it's easy to get into a mindset that, okay, since my DNA is like this, then I'm not going to make that much effort to make a change, right? Uh, that's something that comes to my mind when I think about, okay, if we understand that I'm sure DNA is a big part and actually, my dad is a general doctor, and he always has that point. But I, before I read your book and got to know you more, I always argue, well, external factors. And you mentioned that, too, that have influence. But how would you say, like, how can we maybe uh, not let people get into that victim mindset that, okay, if now my DNA says it's hard for me to lose weight, then here is the excuse, right? And then I cannot really do that. Yeah, well, that's such a good question to start off, but it's a very complicated answer. Um, and it's what I try to focus on in the book Blueprint. But um, the bottom line is just because there's genetic influence, it doesn't mean um, everything about you is determined. That is, you can't change it. In, so you take weight as an example. People are often surprised to hear that individual differences in weight are highly heritable, that is influenced by inherited DNA differences. Um, you know, they accept height, I'm sure everyone accepts is largely heritable. Yeah. But weight, you know, people are often surprised because they think, well, you know, if I don't eat, I lose weight. But what we're studying here are individual differences say in weight, in a population as they exist at a particular time, and the extent to which inherited DNA differences mm -hmm. account for those differences. And it is surprising that the, about 60% of those differences are due to DNA differences. Now that's just describing what is in a population. It's not saying what could be. 
-hmm. So even if you have a strong genetic propensity to put on weight, as I do, um, um, it doesn't mean you can't lose weight. Obviously, you can lose weight. But it's just in the normal course of the of the day when you know you're bombarded by food cues and advertising for food um you know you just add a little pound here and a pound there and it keeps increasing you know it's that sort of thing but it definitely genetic influence doesn't mean there's nothing you can do about it and after i found that my dna score for weight is my highest risk factor i'm we'll talk about these polygenic scores where you can predict individual differences from DNA alone. Well, when I predict my weight genetically, it's very high. It's at the 94th percentile. And I actually find that helpful to me to realize I, I have a body that just wants to put on weight and it's harder to lose weight. It doesn't mean I can't, I definitely can. And knowing I have this genetic propensity kind of motivates me mm. to realize I'm in a battle of the bulge, you know, and it's I have to change my environment. I just don't have junk food in the house, for example. You know, people who are skinny just don't understand, you know. They'd say, well, just don't eat it. Don't be, you know, you know, as they say in England, pull your socks up, you know, and get in control. But you know, it's just that you slip sometimes, you're tired or whatever. So I think it's such an important point to say that to understand ourselves, it is important to recognize that genetics is very important. It makes us different on every psychological trait. Mm -hmm. But that's not to say that there's nothing we can do about it. In fact, I think the more you understand yourself, part of that is understanding who you are genetically. And to realize that, you know, other things being equal, you're more likely to go this way or that way. You know, if you're shy, it doesn't mean you're pathological. You know, it, it just means that you take longer to warm up with people. And that's good to know about yourself and, and about your kids. If you had a kid who was shy, mm -hmm. that's one of the most heritable temperament traits in infancy. And if you recognize the genetic impact of that, first, you don't think, oh, my kid's shy, they're weird. You know, in America, it's almost like pathological to be yeah. shy, isn't it? Whereas yeah. in England, it's the other way around, you know? I mean, Americans get a bad rep here because, you know, everyone has a story about being on an airplane with an American and in five minutes, they're telling you about their whole life story and their sex life and everything, you know? So um, if, first of all, shyness, you got to recognize individual differences like in shyness and respect them to a greater extent and to say okay my kid's shy that doesn't mean it's pathological it just means that it takes them longer to warm up so if they're going to a birthday party with a bunch of kids if you recognize their shyness you wouldn't just drop them off and say bye you know you'd probably help have them go with another kid so that you know they have a friend and you make sure they're warmed up to in the party and and then you could could leave. So I think it's important to recognize and respect these genetically influenced individual differences and to kind of go with them, you know, to kind of go with the flow a bit more rather than beating yourself up because you're not like the way you think you are supposed to be or with parents, I think you especially see it. You know, some parents still think that kids are a blob of clay. They can mold to be what they want them to be. Mm. And that's not the case. There's a lot of genetic influence there. But it's not to say, again, there's nothing you can do. I mean, you can stop your kids from hitting other kids. You know, you can say, no, that's just not acceptable. Mm -hmm. But you're not trying to make them what you want them to be. You know, you're recognizing their differences. And you're helping them find things that they like to do and that they're good at. I think that's such an important message for parents. You know, I'm, I, I'm going off too, too long on this, but let me just say one more thing about it. Is there, you know, there are thousands of parenting books and none of them talk about genetics. Mm. And I think the single most important thing for a parent to know is that genetics is very important. And it's not to say you can't do anything, but Rather than 
deciding what you want your kid to be. It's far better to give them opportunities to be what they want to be, what they're good at, and helping them do that rather than making them be what you want them to be. So I think it's a very important message for parenting, but I'll stop there. <laughs> Robert, there are two things come to my mind. Uh, first of all, I think when I think about what you say about, let's say that person who's shy and we are sometimes too quick to diagnose them in any way, especially I think in US. And I personally, when I see clients, I'm very careful to diagnose them with anything because I understand I can easily become an identity for them, right? And say, okay, now I have a depression or, you know, um, this and that. So therefore, you see, like they get into this mentality, that's who I am. And that easily can affect them and the way they interact, they relate to the world, etc., yeah, but I think what you say also that it's like a diagnosis, like diagnosis too can be helpful if you truly understand them and see, OK, if I have this, what does that mean? Right. How can I? So I think part of that goes to the way person perceives that. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so is with their DNA. So I want you to kind of answer that. And another thing comes to my mind about the importance of the DNA, as you mentioned, at genetics for parents to know for their children. I think something we have in my culture, which I appreciate, they said, like, if you want to marry someone, right, always see their family too, because in a way, you're also marrying their family. Yes. Makes sense to me when I think about genetics, right? Because you are understanding, okay, if I'm marrying this person, and have kids, for example, I'm sure there are a lot of things that comes from their genes as well. And is that something I truly want for my children and offsprings? Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I think that's really uh, true. I had an uncle who once said, you know, if you're thinking about going out with a girl, um, take a look at her mother and the rest of her family, you know, to get a sense of where she's coming from genetically. Um, but uh that is, that is a good point, and it's another example of recognizing that genetics is important in sort of understanding yourself as well as understanding, you know, other people, your children, your spouse, whatever. So um, let's see, the, the first, what was the first question you were sort of asking, though? It was more, was that about identity or? Yes, how does our genetic influence our behaviors and identity? Yeah. Well, um, again, all I can say is that um, a large part of what we are is genetics. And it's important in understanding yourself to realize that there are these genetic influences that influence your behavior. You know, as we say, they don't determine your behavior, but it's part of knowing who you are, knowing who your children are. And um, people don't really study the genetics of identity per se. By that, I mean, what do you mean by identity? Can I ask that? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I think identity is basically who the person is, like the way they think, their personality. And of course, also that relates to the way they act and their behaviors. And that's okay. I think one of other questions I have, Robert, is do you think DNA mostly influences the way we even think? Or is it mostly... You know, they say there's this term that is very popular among all people. They say, oh, you are who you, like, you are the person who you spend, like, the you are your five close friends or something like that. So that shows, like, an external kind of influence on you. And I do believe, you know, friends and outside have an influence on us. But do you believe it's in mostly our genetics that influence the way we think or our personality or is our outside factors? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, again, there's a lot of long answers here and I'm just trying to think of shorter answers. But one thing important to point out is when I started in psychology as a graduate student 50 years ago, genetics wasn't even mentioned. Mm. Psychology was completely environmentalistic, meaning everything that you are, your identity, your cognitive abilities, your personality, everything is due to what you learned. You know, it was environmentalistic. 
And over the 50 years, I've seen a dramatic change in psychology towards a recognition of the importance of genetic influence. And again, it's this distinction between what is, you know, describing how, what makes people different now in this particular population versus what could be. And that includes, can you change? Yes, you can change. But genetic influences are a large part of um, who we are. And um, it's been very satisfying to me to see over the 50 years how much psychology has changed towards really antipathy towards genetics to a real acceptance. So um, I, I think that's to the good, and especially with the DNA revolution now, where we can begin to predict psychological traits and identities from actual DNA itself. Mm -hmm. I think what you're saying, Robert, is basically our DNA is the basis of who we are, right? And it's, we could still make those changes, which those external factors can be as potentials, like, you know, if we choose to do them, but yeah. still we are the DNA, but there are still those changes can be made. Yeah. Well, two, two things about that, though, is one is, you know, the uh, American ideal that you can be anything you want to be. Mm. And that that isn't right, really. I mean, you know, if you think you're going to be the world's fastest runner and you don't have the body for it, you know, you can get much better as a runner, but you're not going to be an Olympic athlete. People kind of accept that, you know, because of the bodily constraints on athletic um, excellence, for example. But in a lot of other areas, you know, like music, for example, I love music, but I'm not particularly musically uh, gifted. If I, if I could be reincarnated, I'd, I'd like to come back as a jazz musician. You know, I love jazz, but I'm, you know, I play music, but you know, I'm just, I know I'm not really good at it. And, but I know I can get better, you know, I can learn to play, but um, you know, it, it does involve constraints to some extent. Do you know, we, I don't think it's true that anyone can be anything they want to be if they just try hard enough. Because then if they don't succeed, it's sort of their fault, right? And, you know, I think it's, again, important to recognize your aptitudes and appetites. You know, what you like to do and what you're good at, because the more you do something, the better you get at it. You know, and you got to be realistic, though. I mean, you know, if you're if you're five foot four, you're unlikely to be um, a, a national basketball player, you know, on a national team, for example. So, um, yeah. OK, well, I'll stop there. <laughs> Do you think that's where, um, you know, Robert, when you talk about that, also what comes to my mind is like taking responsibility for your life and, you know, your actions, etc., do you think one, if you understand your DNA, it would be easier to take responsibility or it would be, it can also give you a fact, okay, that's who I am, then, you know, I'm going to act like this. It can take mm -hmm. away you taking responsibility from your own life. Or as I said, with, um, say, body weight, for example, you know, it can go the other way. I find that... Um, I'm not alone in thinking that by knowing I have a high genetic risk for uh, putting on weight, you're, what you were saying is, well, I could just say, throw up my hand, say, oh, nothing I can do about it. I'm just going to be, you know, a genetic fatty, you know, but I find it works the other way. You know, if you understand that you, unlike most people, I mean, you really do tend to put on weight more easily and you find it harder to get rid of that weight. So then you start thinking about, well, what can I do about that? Mm. And I'm going to have to work harder. And skinny people, it isn't even an issue. You know, they just stop eating when they're full and, you know, they don't put on weight. So, again, I think, you know, it doesn't mean you can't do anything about these things, but um, it, 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 you can't. You know, it's it's um, kind of wicked in a way to tell people you can be anything you want to be, which means that if you're if you don't succeed at that, then you're at fault. It was your fault for not being good at that. So I think we need more tolerance for other people and for ourselves. Um, 
So there's so much to say about all these issues, you know. Um, Yeah. And I also think about like we are using a physical example, but I've seen it in my personal life, Robert, where I realize some of the even personal traits that I have seen in my dad, for example, my father, I, or some of the things he's even done in his life in his early age. And all of a sudden I see those patterns inside myself. I don't know if it happens to you. And Yes. then you're like, wow, like it, it, as if you're experiencing again, the same thing he has experienced or, you know, and I think the way I have personally dealt with those things is by becoming aware of them, then I'll be able to make those changes. Oh, like here's the pattern, right? Or here's how it's done. And Yeah. And, you know, there's a saying that uh, the older you get, the more you become like your parents. And, you know, I know that too. And unfortunately, it's often the less pleasant characteristics, you know. So in my case, um, my father's a wonderful person, but he did have a very, uh, he was very quick tempered. You know, he, he could get angry very fast and get very angry. You know, it was kind of scary as a kid. But, um, and I thought, well, I'm not going to be like that. But then I find that I actually am like that. You know, I can get angry quick, easily. And as you say, though, you know, you can then, by recognizing that, you can say, okay, I've really got to watch that. And, you know, stoical training and mindfulness training, I think, are very useful on those lines. Just to say, okay, I know I could get very angry now. And the trouble is, once you get angry, it's hard to do anything about it for a while, you know. But if you can recognize this is a situation, I could get angry here. And you can take a stoic approach and say, but actually, I could do this and that and that. I don't have to get angry. And especially when I recognize that getting angry punishes me much more than it punishes the other person, you know, for example. So I think it is very important to recognize these propensities that you have. Because in the case of anger, I'm, I've gotten very good at not letting myself become angry. You know, some, in some very rare instances, you know, you, you should be angry. I mean, something really bad has happened and you should be um, angry about it. But most of the time, you know, like road rage or you think people have insulted you or things like that, you know, in, instead of just reacting, you know, at that animal level, you can say, no, I... I don't have to. I can recognize this emotion and say, I, I can deal with that in different ways. I don't have to get angry and upset. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a good example, I think. Yeah, actually, that I was going to ask you that question, too. You talk about the DNA revolution, Robert. I don't know that's a topic you talk about, you know, in your book and, of course, in your talks. And Mm -hmm. uh, one point is it predict problems and prom promise from birth, right? It prevent problems before they emerge, which now, as we are talking, I understand more. You also talk about how it transforms science, society, and how we understand ourselves and um. personalized education and healthcare. I'm very curious to know about that. How can knowing right about our DNA or you know what you talk about DNA revolution can help personalize you know the educational system and healthcare? Because I do believe um there is an you know there is an issue in the way our education system is and our healthcare. And how can that help uh you know for us to understand or make that transformation basically Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, another very good question. I think um, a good place to start is in the medical area, because all of medicine now is moving away from a model where you wait until someone has a disease like a heart attack, and then you try to fix it. That's really the way the whole medical insurance system is set up. You know, hospitals get paid when people go there and get their heart attacks taken care of. But instead now, medicine is moving towards a preventative model. And DNA is the best early warning system we have because you can, before you can prevent, you have to predict. And you can predict with DNA, as you say, from early in life. Um, your listeners might be surprised to understand that 
we begin life as a single cell with a set of DNA, half of the three billion base pairs from your mother and half from your father. And that same DNA is in every one of the trillions of cells in your body. It doesn't change except for random mutations. And what that means then is that when you could predict heart attacks just as well from birth as you can from later in life. Mm. And the reason that's important is the earlier you can pre predict and prevent, the better and the more efficient and cost effective it is. You know, for example, if you knew as uh, what something like 5% um, of the men are walking around with a genetic risk for having a severe heart attack that's like tenfold greater than other people. And if you knew that, um, you can, you'd, first thing is you probably want to pay more attention to the messages we all get. Eat well, exercise, you know, pay attention to your health. And, but then there are other things you can do that get increasingly technical technological, but there are ways of predicting, you know, when your arteries are starting to clog up, for example. So I think this idea of switching from a model where you treat a disease to a model where you prevent it has to be a good way to go. And people are excited about that with psychopathology as well. Mm -hmm. You know, to what extent can um, even with schizophrenia, but especially like with depression or alcoholism, to what extent can you predict and prevent these disorders from happening? Because, you know, imagine like with heart attacks, it's a no-brainer. That's why medicine is very much moving in this direction. You know, several countries now are uh, getting these DNA measures on people so that they can uh, prevent heart attacks. Because, you know, economically and socially and in terms of your personal quality of life, it's got to be a lot better to prevent heart attacks than to treat them once you have them. And it's also thought that's true with schizophrenia even, that if, if you can ameliorate the first episode or forestall it, have, you know, ha don't have it happen as soon as possible, uh, you know, delay its onset as much as you can. Mm -hmm. That's probably the best thing you can do in the long run. And the best example, I think, is alcoholism. If you knew that you or your child was at a high genetic risk for alcoholism, it doesn't mean they're going to become an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. It just means given our alcohol-laden world, they're more likely to become habituated and addicted to alcohol. And so what do you do about it? You just say, do what we're all supposed to do. Monitor your alcohol use. Take holidays from alcohol to see that you're not really dependent on it. And so it's just a, and if you don't drink a lot of alcohol, you cannot become alcoholic. You know, it, it, people mix, mix it up, you know, an alcoholic who can take one drink that can fall off the wagon. But to become alcoholic, you have to drink a lot of alcohol over a long period of time. And if you knew you were at risk, you, you wouldn't do that, or you'd at least pay attention to how addicted you're becoming to alcohol. So I think this idea of, prevention is, you know, just so important psychologically as well. Mm. So I, that's, that's where a lot of research attention is going now. Yeah. And as we're talking, Robert, what comes to my mind, this can be such a good question when you're on date, you know, you can ask, how's your, do you think that would be a ideal question to ask the person if you want to get very serious? Like how's, is there a test or uh, how would you say, Robert, like we can understand about that DNA, like we can do a test or because I, I believe many of the listeners now are curious, okay, how can I know in order to, you know, understand myself better of who I am in those terms and prevent yes. some of those things? Well, something like 30 million people have around the world have paid to have their DNA tested. And that's like 23andMe is a company that probably has the biggest share of that but a lot of people do it for ancestry mm. information yeah. you know because you find you think you're iranian but you might find that you have you know five percent well we all have like two percent or so neanderthal dna but you know you can find out well you must have had some relative from eastern europe or something like that or you know maybe southeast asia or whatever so the ancestry stuff is quite interesting mm -hmm. but 
what these DNA tests tell you is if you have any of the thousands of single gene disorders. Now, we've been talking about psychological traits and common medical disorders. They're influenced by many, many genes, thousands of genes of little effect. Most people, when you say genetic, they think of a single gene. You know, have you got the gene for schizophrenia mm. or alcoholism? And that's not at all what it's about. There's no gene for schizophrenia or gene for alcoholism. There are thousands of little genetic effects that make those disorders heritable. So that's the big difference that these DNA testing companies, there's 50 of them around the world, but you know, what they do is they give you very good information about single gene disorders. And what's, you know, they're very rare, fortunately. You know, they, evolution takes care of, you know, getting rid of these very lethal mutations. But the ones that exist, you know, are still devastating for an individual but they don't account for much difference in the population. Like there are no psychological traits that you can say, ah, there's a single gene disorder, you know? So even if you think of things like, um, uh, I don't know if people know Alzheimer's disease, you know, a, a form of dementia, there's a gene that accounts for maybe a, a quarter of the genetic influence there. It's like a single gene, but it, it's, it's only, um, far less than 1% of the population that would have, in this case, a double dose of that gene. Mm -hmm. So most of those single gene influences are rare, but these companies now are beginning to get into the polygenic score prediction, mm -hmm. which, which is really what we need in psychology and medicine because single gene disorders, you know, they're so rare, like the average medical disorder that's a single gene is like one in 50,000, one in 100,000. You know, they're really quite rare. Now, if you're the unfortunate person that has that mutation, it's very bad news. But mostly if if um, your listeners would do one of these tests, which costs about 100 bucks now, 150 bucks to get the ancestry information, which is very fascinating to people, especially in America, because America is so heterogeneous. You know, uh, people, well, it's a melting pot, isn't it? Yeah. So, um and then you get this single gene information. And most of the time you'll find you don't have any of these single gene mutations. And people say, oh, well, that was kind of a waste. No, I mean, it's actually very good to know you don't have any of those single gene disorders. But, you know, in, you mentioned dating, though. And these websites, until they were closed down by FDA, one of the most popular things in the last few years was DNA dating sites. Mm. Where you actually do get matched you know, they sold them. The reason they got shut down because they they um, they they promoted these dating sites as finding your ideal mate. Mm. You know, and and so people, you know, but and it's not at that stage yet where it could do that. But a really interesting feature here is that George Church, who's this most famous geneticist at MIT and Harvard. Um, offers any couple who's thinking about getting married, having kids, to, to do DNA testing so that they can tell if they have any of these single genes, mm -hmm. mutations. Because most of them, I don't I know if this is getting too technical, but most, the vast majority, like 95% of all these single gene mutations are recessive. It takes two copies. You have to get one copy from your mother and one from your father before you have the disease. Mm. So, and the one people who have just one copy are called carriers. Carriers don't show the disease. And most of the, the reason it survives natural selection is say in the case of phenylketonuria, which causes mental re severe mental retardation. It's a recessive disorder. Mm. And, the, it, it only affects like one in 10,000 Caucasians, but one in 50 of us are carriers. And so it's, you know, it's rare, but if you mate with someone then who is also a carrier for phenylketonuria, then 25% of your offspring will actually have two copies 
And that means they'll actually have this phenol, this mental illness, um, phenylcatenuria. Mm -hmm. And so what George Church offers to do is to sequence couples DNA, because even though these are rare, and even rarer is the chance that your mate will have that corresponding copy, but still it will happen maybe not 1% of the time, maybe less than that. Mm. But if you did this, you could get rid of these single gene disorders in one generation. You know, it's really quite amazing to think about this. And there are examples where it's happened. You know, um, Ashkenazi Jews have uh, this Tay-Sachs mutation at a much higher frequency. It's a recessive disorder that is horrible. It causes neural degeneration. You know, the worst mutations don't even come to birth, but the ones that do come to birth look pretty bad, like Tay-Sachs, where they just degenerate over the first few years of life and then die. You know, it's, it's sort of the worst thing as a parent that you could imagine. And by recognizing this about 10 years ago in New York, where the, uh, very traditional Ashkenazi Jews will have arranged marriages, mm. and they would look at genetic sort of things. But then they said, let's do this testing. And if a couple, both were recessive, they were carriers for Tay-Sachs disease, they wouldn't say you can't get ma married, but if you did, you've got a 25% chance of having kids with this disorder. So you could do in vitro fertilization, or you could find someone else. You could just, or not have kids or, or whatever. But in, in these 10 or so years, they pretty much eliminated this Tay-Sachs disease. Mm. So I think that's a very important um, implication when you think about couples uh, mating. And, you know, we already do select our mates for psychological traits. You know, people are often surprised to find that if you were single and you're looking for someone at a bar and you're talking to someone, you know, the thing you select on most, you might think it's height. Well, actually, couples only correlate 0.2 for height. You know, that goes from zero to one, 0.2, pretty modest correlation. The thing they um, pick their mate for more than anything is intelligence. Mm, okay. For verbal intelligence more than anything, because, you know, you very quickly find out in talking to somebody, you know, how, how bright they are really, mm. you know, at that sort of practical level. And that's a, that's a, it will all psychological traits are heritable, but verbal ability is more heritable than most. It's about 60%. Very interesting. Irritable. So we're already actually selecting our mates to some extent on the basis of these genetically influenced characteristics. Yeah. But the, the DNA testing, I think, uh, it's not quite there yet where you, of all the things you're concerned about when you're meeting someone, you know, how attractive they are and how much fun they are and all those things, you're not going to add much to your predictive power by knowing their genetics. Now, if you did find, for example, they had a high genetic risk for schizophrenia or for bipolar, manic depression, you know, maybe they would want to take that into account and you would want to take that into account. But I think there's, it's such a complex decision yeah. who this person is you're going to marry that I don't think we're going to add much to it by knowing about their DNA. Certainly, but I also think like personally, I'm curious to take it to see what I am, right? Like, and I think that's can be such a good choice for every individual to, in order to understand them better. And I think Robert, to kind of conclude, and you know, we started with that question. I think to me, it starts the way I look at DNA and, you know, kind of understanding how DNA makes us who we are is understanding how we can make certain choices about what external factors we want to accept or bring into our life and uh, kind of predict as you say or kind of prevent some of the things that can happen by knowing our dna would you agree that's that kind of is another way to explain this yeah no absolutely i think what genetics does is it's not like hardwired in your brain yeah. it's it's how you use the environment in genetics we call that genotype environment 
correlation. So the genes, if you put genes on the table here, the DNA, it doesn't do anything. The way genes work, like vocabulary is the most highly heritable cognitive test, but we don't inherit vocabulary words. If, if you have this a verbal channel, it makes you kind of pay attention to words. You think about nuances of words and you get a better vocabulary by using your environment to enhance your genetic propensities. And so I think that's such an important point as about how genetics works. It's not like a puppeteer pulling our strings. It's, it's how we use our environment. And yeah. we can, and by knowing ourselves better, we, we can make better decisions probably about how we use our environment. Exactly. Use it to our advantage, basically. Yes. Yes. Yeah, totally. Robert, well, I truly enjoy our conversation. Thank you for being here. And My pleasure. For our last question, this is something we always ask. If you could suggest one act of kindness to our listeners, what would that be? Huh. Well, um, that's a that's a tough one for me. I, I, I you know, as I said, I'm, I'm much more into kindness these days than I've ever been. And, you know, I kind of I kind of like the uh, idea of random acts of kindness. Mm. You know, I mean, it can make such a big difference for people. You know, so one thing I do being in England, where unlike California, you know, it's such a you don't come here for the weather. Right. I mean, it rains a lot. You know, so what I do is I carry around in my backpack some cheap umbrellas. And when it's raining and someone gets caught in the rain, I just give them an umbrella on the street. You know, they're two bucks, you know, these cheap little umbrellas. And it's just amazing to see what difference it makes to people. Yeah. And and, you know, it's selfish in a way. It just gives me great pleasure to see them, you know, realizing they're not going to get soaked. So uh, I think random acts of kindness are kind of a, a, a nice thing to think about, you know, because, well, so, but, but I think kindness in every level is important, you know, with my students and my family and, you know, you can't be too kind. <laughs> Yeah, you know, before we record, I talk about how I always ask my students to give one value that's important to them, like how we started the podcast. And the one I always choose is service, Robert. And as you said, because I always say my philosophy is when we serve, not only we make people happy, but we are the happiest too. So it's like a twofold, right? And it's the greatest thing we could do because it makes us happy as well and make other people happy. So I think what you do is great. <laughs> and very considerate you take into consideration so uh robert i just want to thank you for being here and if you have any last words for the listeners nope it's a just great talking to you and your um say hello and goodbye to your lucky students to have you doing this and uh you know I, good luck with your podcast i've looked at some of the others and it's it's a it's a nice kind of niche that you you have with your podcast. So thank you for asking me to be part of it. Thank you, Robert. Okay. My former students, Brida, welcome. Uh, please give us one value that's important to you and the reason. Yeah, thank you for having me. Hi, everybody. I'm Britta. A value that's important to me is empathy. I find that empathy is just a great value to have that brings connection within humans. So if we're able to empathize, understand, and kind of step into a person's shoes, it can just be a great breeding ground for understanding and community. Great value. How's everything been post-graduation, Rita? Yeah, things have been awesome. It's been, I think, about like three weeks or so, and it's just been super awesome just taking it all in, getting all my documents ready for the BBS, but it's been it's been really nice. Okay, great. I'm glad to hear. So, Rita, today we're talking and answering the question, how does our genetics and DNA, you know, influence behaviors and identity? Uh, what is your take on that? 
in terms of, you know, we always talk about in psychology too, the difference between nature and nurture. So I'm curious to know your thoughts. Yeah, well, I, I just find this topic so fascinating. Um, and I really do think it is such a mix of that nature and nurture. But I kind of look at it from a standpoint of our genes are kind of like our predisposition or like the starting ground, if you will, the foundation. And then it's the environment in which we grow up in that might shape those genetics to show up in different ways, you know, so it could be like your different environment that you're in, your household, how your family is, your community, your culture, all these different things that could have those genetics show up in different ways. Yeah, we were talking earlier that, you know, the way sometimes there are some patterns we see in our parents that we mm -hmm. see also in ourselves. And one way we can, you know, change those patterns if we see they're not effective is to be aware of them and being able to make those changes. I wonder if you have any example of that in your own life, uh, Brita. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm, I'm one of four, so I have three other siblings and just seeing the difference in us. Cause we're not, I, none of us are identical twins or anything, so we don't share all our DNA, but just the difference in how we all present ourselves and seeing our parents and how our parents have been and, you know, pick and choosing different things that we've liked, how our parents have raised us and maybe things that we would be like, Oh, maybe we would do this a little different. Um, and me, I'm eight years older than my youngest brother. So he's grown up a lot without me in the house. So he's had such a different environment compared to me. I had all my siblings in the house. So just that alone has just been such a crazy difference to see. Yeah. And mm -hmm. you mentioned about the environment. How much of that do you think has influence in our behaviors? The oh. environment? I think it has a very, a very big impact. I do think it's very important um, because if someone has like a predisposition or a susceptibility to have like a mental disorder, if you will, um, if they grow up in an environment that would make that, um, that chance increase, you know, that could present more versus, you know, if they have that susceptibility, but then they grow up in this environment that's very um, like comforting for that or can provide the tools and resources that person would need um, to support them. So I do think it has a very large impact. Yeah, we also talk about how, you know, knowing about our DNA can sometimes prevent what will happen in the future or make us be more aware of our choices. Yeah. You know, do, do you agree with that, that that can be a possibility? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's having that awareness in the first place is that big step that a person would need. But I I totally agree with that. Exactly. So, um. Brita, you were talking before we record that you're interested. What population you said you want to work at school setting? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love working with children. I also love working with couples and families. So I kind of want to try a little bit of everything. But right now, I definitely want to stay with children. Yeah. And is there a certain reason that made you interested in that population in a specific? Yeah, I. you know what? I do think so, because in the the population, when I say children, it's more like middle school age. So like 11 to 13 year olds. Um, and I think for me, I chose that or that's really resonating with me right now is because that's the age I was when I was really struggling and I really would have benefited from having a therapist. So I think that's kind of helped me connect a little better with that age group right now. Um, yeah. So that's probably why. Yeah, and I, if you remember in our class, we talk about how sometimes the thing we experience and the pain can become our purpose. Mm -hmm. And it sounds that's something you found within your work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because I've, I've known I wanted to be a therapist since I was in middle school, you know, which now thinking about it, I have a total different perspective on that. Um, but I really do believe that's very true. And it is definitely true for me. And that can be very meaningful as I can see you're so passionate about it as well. I'm yeah. glad to hear. So, uh, Brida, for our last question, we always ask our guests if they could uh, suggest one act of kindness. What would that be? So how what would you suggest? Yeah, I'm a big acts of service person. Um, so I would suggest, you know, if a person's out and about, even just holding a door open for somebody um, could really make someone's day. Or if you're at home with whoever you live with, like helping them take in the groceries or taking a task off someone's um, plate, I think can go a long way. Right. Brida, thank you for being here. 
Yeah, thank you. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to be with you in the next episode. And meanwhile, if you want to stay connected, you can reach me via email at contact at parsapaycar.com. Thank you.